20 of the Going for Broke Outdoors podcast, a podcast by an outdoorsman for other outdoorsmen. I'm your host, Jeremy Gillespie. In today's episode, we catch up with Clay Burkhart. Clay goes against the grain by hunting with traditional archery equipment on public land in the state of Texas, which is typically known for its rifle hunting and expansive private ranches. I really enjoyed my conversation with Clay and his great sense of humor. This episode highlights the practical simplicity in Clay's approach, which consists of traditional archery equipment and no-nonsense tactics. But don't let that distract you. Clay is certainly paying attention to the details, and his straightforward tactics just plain work is evidenced by his results season after season. In a world of gimmicks and hunting gadgets, we'd all do ourselves a favor by incorporating some of Clay's get-back-to-basic style this coming season. Final note, Clay and I recorded this podcast way back in early October. Clay had already killed one really nice Texas buck with his recurve, and later on in the season after the podcast, he bagged a second. So congrats to Clay on another successful season. Today's podcast is brought to you by Stealth Outdoors at www.stealthoutdoors.com. Visit the Stealth Outdoor store to outfit your mobile hunting setup with some silencing gear. Hunting seasons are closed just about everywhere, and the holidays are over. January and February are my favorite times to take stock of my gear and make upgrades for the upcoming season. If your gear isn't already sporting stealth strips, now's the perfect time to upgrade. There's not a better product on the market for eliminating unwanted noise. Stealth Outdoors manufactures an incredibly durable product and an excellent value. Designed from the ground up with Mobile Hunter in mind, Stealth Outdoors manufactures climbing stick wraps, cam buckle covers, platform cable wraps, and stealth strip rolls for all of your miscellaneous silencing needs. Visit www.stealthoutdoors.com to place your order today. Now, on to the podcast. All right, today on the podcast, I'm joined by Clay Burkhart. Clay, how you doing today? I'm doing great, man. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I appreciate it. You're uh, quite the character on the beast. I've been looking forward to talking to you for quite a while, and this is the first time, so it should be an interesting conversation, I imagine. I imagine. You got it. Let's do it. <laughs> So, Clay, w- one of the things I wanted to start out with is you had a great post on The Beast about rolling with the punches, and I want to read part of your post as a lead-in to kick off this podcast. You said, and I quote, We are in pursuit of a needle in a haystack, ladies and gents, the rare pearl amongst oysters, if you will. It's not easy. Important thing is believing in what you're doing and the difference between the surgical killers and the newcomers on the site. It's not about having obstacles and looking down the barrel of adversity, these killers know how to take a punch, get up, dust themselves off, and get ready for the next round. Adversity never goes away. You just build confidence to accept it and beat it. So I think having positive and even more important, a resilient mindset is absolutely critical for chasing big bucks. So I want to start out with having you tell me a story or two about some of your more memorable blunders and how you came back from those. In my area, the farmers basically all plant the same crop in the entire county. It's usually a rotation between either cotton or milo. One particular year, one farmer, for some reason, decided to plant alfalfa when everything else was cotton. I'd watched that alfalfa field all summer, and there was this monster bug that hit it darn near every day. The way the property set up, was there was a low corner that dropped down into a creek bottom. And I'd glass from about 200 yards, and every day he had come parallel in that creek bottom, cross that drainage, and he'd just stand at that low corner, and he'd watch over for five minutes. Once he knew everything was okay, he'd jump the fence and 
going out. About 10 yards from there was an old hedge apple tree. And I was like, man, this it doesn't set up any more perfect than this. So I went in there, hung me a stand in that hedge apple tree, and I was just waiting. Opening day came, and it was perfect. It rained all day, and the sun was going to pop out about 5 o'clock. It's one of those times you basically tell your wife, clean out the deep freeze. Daddy's about to come home with the bacon. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, everything was perfect. I get in there. Deer started to filter in from the other side. And here he comes. I see him. I let him walk broadside at 15 yards parallel in that creek. And then I see him drop down into that drainage. But from the rain, I guess it was kind of slick. When he started to come out, he slipped, and his momentum caused him to trot. And he came out of there, jumped the fence, and within a second was out of my life. And I'm just sitting there thinking, what in the heck just happened? <laughs> I guess the lesson learned from all that is to take the first opportunity that's presented. I mean, I sat there and watched him broadside at 15 yards, but I wanted that simple chip shot, and I knew what he did every day. And it just didn't happen for me, man. <laughs> it, and it don't get no easier than that. I don't know how I messed that one up to this day, but it hurts. Yeah, I have a funny, uh, similar story. So my girlfriend's dad, they've got about 120 acres in Michigan. And he was always real big, still is. Uh, he was a hunter safety teacher for a long time about taking ethical shots. So he always pounded it into my head, you know, take a good broadside shot, preferably 20 yards and under. So probably the second or third good buck I had ever seen in Michigan was coming down this logging road and he was coming in from my right and I had a little buck coming in from my left just happened to be at the same time right right early in the rut around Halloween this road I was set up over it it was only 18 yards to the road in front of me you know good perfect ethical shot distance so this deer stops at like 27 yards broadside and I'm like you know, I'm not going to shoot him. I'm going to wait. He's going to come in for sure. And so this little buck comes in and for whatever reason, don't ask me why the big buck starts circling away from him. So he's getting farther away and farther away. And, and long story short, I didn't get that deer either. So I'm, I'm with you. Take the first good shot you got. Yep. I mean, you learn little stuff along the way, but that one was such a slam dunk. I knew what he was going to do. And man, it just didn't happen for him. So I imagine you've been a lifelong deer hunter, right? How long have you been deer hunting now? Man, I started deer hunting when I was probably nine. My dad started taking me when I was around nine. I strictly gun hunted all the way up through high school. But, I mean, things were a lot different than they are now. But I did always love it. And uh, if you don't mind me asking, how old are you now, Clay? I'm about to be 41 in a couple days. Okay, well, we're pretty close in age then. I'm 38, so not too far apart. So we started off talking about bouncing back and building a resilient mindset. So I'm sure being a lifelong hunter, I know I've had plenty of blunders and plenty of screw-ups. What's helped you come back after uh, something like the story we just talked about? What works for you? I think I might possibly be the world's biggest hardhead, to be honest with you. <laughs> I don't know. I'm sure like a lot of guys, I'm a bit competitive. I mean, not with other hunters, but with the animal themselves. I, I don't like to get beat. And it's hard to come to grips with you're going to let a four-legged grazing animal whoop you. <laughs> I, I mean, it, it happens, and it happens often. 
But in my head, I'm going to get him. I don't care what it takes. I'm going to run him to the edge of the earth, and I'm going to get the sucker. So have you had any bucks where that's a, a good topic that we didn't really discuss that'd be worth mentioning here. Have you had any bucks that you've been chasing uh, in previous seasons where where you had a tough time and ended up getting them later on the season or maybe even the following year? Well, close. I had a buck, a big eight point. I, I called him swoops because he had these long beams that just both of them curled up. And he was on a real small property. And I had cameras on the property, and he was a homebody. I got pictures of him darn near every day. I guess that's the disheartening part. I mean, it's one thing to get beat not knowing if they're there, but when you know they're there and you're getting it handed to you, that really hurts. <laughs> the way it was, there was a ag field across the farmer's market road, and then the, the small wood lot I was hunting, like a lot of them, the front five or ten acres is an old abandoned farmhouse you know it's kind of grown up cattle pasture with remnants of an old house and that buck would come off the the food across the road and there was a low spot in that fence and he'd shimmy on over darn near every day (laughs) and i had a camera right at that fence where he'd come over uh, and if I wanted to, I could go out there at 5 in the morning, and I would know if he was in there or not. And I just couldn't get on the stuff. I mean, I couldn't even get a picture of him in daylight. And years just kept going by, and I, I got an obsession with this stuff. Out of all those years, I got one daylight picture of him. And it was on a wind switch in the middle of the day, and it went to straight east with the front coming in. So after the season, I'm going through all this stuff and planning for next year, and I see that picture and go back and look at the wind, and I'm like, I got it. I got him this year. So next season comes, and I wait for that wind. I I don't hunt him at all, and I'm just waiting for that east wind. And it don't come, it don't come, or it comes, and I'm at work, whatever. Finally get it, day after Christmas. While everyone's opening their presents, I sit there, I look at the weather, and I'm like, ooh, I got it. So the following day, I go out there, I get in my spot, I see some other deer activity, and boom, I see horns coming my way. I'm like, I got this sucker now. And he's standing right behind a, a cedar tree. I mean, still within 10 yards of me, but I really can't see him. I just know he's there, and it's one of them scenarios where the seconds feel like hours and you're just sitting there sweating saying, come on, baby, right. wind don't switch on me. And that sucker stepped out. And I mean, I, I drilled from real close. I'm like, ooh. I mean, you got that pride of, man, I finally got this stuff. I go down there and get my hands on. It ain't him. Oh, no. <laughs> I mean, it's a bus that looks just like it, but it wasn't him. I'm like, God almighty sucker got me again and then the the he just disappeared on me like a bunch of bucks do i don't know what happened to him i never saw him again the next year case of mistaken identity i got a friend that that listens to this i won't mention him by name but uh he did the same thing this year he had two bucks on camera and there one was a bigger version of the other one like they looked almost identical same like you said the beam shape was very similar same number of points and uh he shot the smaller one thinking it was the bigger one yeah, I mean, it happens quick out there. It, it's not like TV where you look through a catalog and 
is this one a shooter? Is this one a shooter? I mean, especially in bow hunting, when you're not sitting on food plots and everything else, it, it happens quick. I typically know, no, I know instantly if I'm going to kill a buck or not. If I got to sit there and talk myself into it, it generally isn't the one for me. Yeah, I hear you. In, in bow hunting in the real world, that's a very good point as often, and I can think of a handful of bucks that I've shot where you've literally a lot of times you've got three, five, ten, if you're lucky, 30 seconds to decide, am I going to shoot this or not? And that could be yeah. your, that could be your one tag for the whole season. So tough call sometimes. Especially early season. I mean, it's thick. It's very no dry, crunchy leaves. If they pop up on you in a hurry, you better know what you're going to do. Yeah, exactly. Well, let's talk about early season and, and kind of we didn't introduce where, where you live, Clay. So you're actually from Texas or you live in Texas now and, and you're a bit of a rarity from what I gather. And I'd say two reasons for that. First, I think from what I know about Texas, correct me if I'm wrong, it's a state that's dominated by gun hunters. And second, you're a public land hunter in a state with very little public land where leasing tends to dominate the deer hunting. So I guess first, uh, talk to me about how you ended up shooting and hunting with traditional archery gear in a gun hunting state. Ooh. Well, I started hunting with compound, and I hunted with one for a lot of years. Um, I mean, hunting was a lot different than it is now when I started. I didn't have a lot of information available to me. Truth is, I never saw a stick bow. The first time I did, I was like, that's what I want. <laughs> I know a lot of guys like different I'm not a tinkering type individual. In fact, I hate that stuff. I, I don't know if you have kids or not, but if you ever get one of them boxes, you know, 10,000-piece kit, playground to put together, takes the average man 18 hours and two cases of beer to assemble, that stuff isn't for me. <laughs> I don't enjoy all the tinkering aspect of it when with the stick bow you got a string and you're pretty much set there's not a lot to go wrong in the jazz i wasn't ever good enough with the compounds for me to take those long shots so i was already accustomed to you know getting them around the 20 yard line but i don't think i have a had a bigger learning curve as some but man i enjoy them it's fun if you ever remember what it felt like to kill that first deer, that's how everyone feels to me with the stick bow. There's that moment of, holy crap, I did it. Yeah. And it never goes away. Yeah. And I, I enjoy it. So it sounds like part of the reason was just the, uh, the, the kiss philosophy, right? Keep it simple. Yeah, it was keep it simple, and I didn't know what I was doing. Even to this day, the closest boarding goods stores about an hour and a half away. I didn't know how to adjust the compound or do any tuning or any of that kind of stuff. So, I mean, imagine if my arrows weren't flexed, they were flying sideways going down there. <laughs> sure. No, I think that's, uh, that's probably a lot more common than people admit. And like you said, especially around the time uh, it's being roughly the same age, people forget, you know, in the early nineties, mid nineties, before the internet really took off, there was no YouTube, there was no Google or it was very, very early on, and uh, it wasn't as nearly easy to find the information. So, Yeah, but, but on the upside, you didn't have all that pressure like you do now. You know, nowadays you've got kids holding out for 150-inch bucks because they care what other people say. Back when I started, 
I was well aware nobody cared if I killed anything or not. I mean, there was like three friends I had who even know I hunted. (laughs) (laughs) Any deer is a big deal, especially when you're bow hunting. I mean, it still is, still is, I think. Guys, I want to take a quick break from the podcast to tell you about BackwoodsMobileGear.com. Backwoods Mobile Gear produces an array of products to completely customize your mobile hunting setup. Backwoods Mobile Gear's product line includes climbing aiders like their multi-step aider and versa aider. Climb higher using the same amount of climbing sticks with climbing aiders at a fraction of the weight of an additional climbing stick. Backwoods Mobile Gear also offers a variety of Amsteel rope solutions from daisy chains for climbing sticks to Amsteel gear hangers. Replace those bulky straps and hunt-ruining metal cam buckles with buckleless and lightweight Amsteel products from Backwoods Mobile Gear. Head on over to Backwoods Mobile Gear at www.backwoodsmobilegear.com if you want your setup to be lighter, to take you higher, and to keep your gear tighter. My next question is going to be and going along with uh, traditional archery because I don't know if there's a, a renaissance or resurgence or whatever you want to call it, but I see guys like you. Uh, one really popular hunter is Jared from Whitetail Adrenaline. He hunts with a, a longbow or recurve a lot, so there's some pretty well-known trad shooters but it's still a rarity i think a lot of guys are are interested but possibly intimidated by it so what advice would you give someone thinking about trying out traditional archery for the first time man i I think it kind of depends on what your goal is i mean if you're the type of guy who's got to kill something to have a good season it's going to be tough on you i mean it takes some getting used to and you're going to screw the boots a couple times but it's fun. I mean, I don't like to speak in absolutes because I don't know the reason why everyone picks one up. But I was talking to another guy and a beast member, and he just has a bucket list to kill a deer with a stick bump. And I think that's cool, too. I don't know why everyone shoots one. I think it fits a lot of people. Maybe they had the same thing going on I did. They don't like tinkering with all this stuff. I mean, the truth is, you mess one with the stick bow, you don't have to be checking your sights. You know it was you. (laughs) Right. That's something (laughs) I've actually heard quite a few people say they've switched for, well, one of the reasons you mentioned and one you didn't. One was they're not normally taking shots over 20, maybe 25 yards anyways. And and two is a lot of guys that I know that have tried it out is because they had such a hard time with target panic, you know, punching a trigger on a release hover hovering a sight pin on an animal but shooting instinctive where they could you know pick a spot with their eye and not a, a pin um i have a friend that i'm thinking of specifically that that does pretty good with the recurve but he's still to this day uh and he's a good hunter but he's, he struggles shooting at a live animal oh yeah man i remember the first animal i had in front of me with the recurve was a doe and i'm not a buck fever type of guy i mean I'm not like a man up there with tremors when one steps out in front of me. But this stinking doe came in about 15 yards. And I mean, the arrow on my riser sounded like a coffee can full of rocks. I mean, it was, <laughs> I'm like, what is going on? It was just different. I don't know how to explain it. But man, I finally got over that. And then, you know, time goes by. I finally killed one. And then I killed another one. And then I, I didn't feel I was at a disadvantage anymore. I was like, well, I can do this. And another good thing about them, if 
if you end up unsuccessful for the year, you can always say I could have killed one if I had a compound. <laughs> yeah, got a, got a built-in excuse. I like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you brought up a good point there is a lot of times we don't know what's possible until we try it. And I think I would say myself personally with hunting beast tactics, when I first saw Dan's videos, setting the stand up close to bedded deer and all this stuff, I was like, oh, there's no way. One, I didn't even think he could do it. And then I saw the videos and yeah. then I certainly didn't think I could do it. And, you know, I didn't do it instantly. I don't want to, I don't want to say that. I certainly didn't. I had plenty of struggles, but I got to the point where several times. Well, into the first yeah. run, I got it. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I got to the point though, where, where several times I had deer walking in while I was setting up my stand. So I knew that I had one snuck in quiet enough and two was setting my stand up quiet enough. So that gave me a lot of confidence. And it sounds like same thing happened with you with the, the trad bow, you know, once you try it and get through some of those initial struggles, it's, it's kind of amazing what you can do when you put your mind to something. Yeah, it, it's that way. The first time you do anything is the hardest. Once you do it, now you believe you can do it. Once you believe you can do it and you got the drive to do it, well, now you're dangerous. I'd put ground hunting in that same boat too, especially these days. I mean, it, it's just like, a, to me, it's like a trad bow, right? There is, I think, a built-in disadvantage hunting from the ground i think it's probably more effective on average to hunt from a tree just to be out of line of sight helps with scent a little bit yeah. but hunting on the ground is kind of the same way it's like it's intimidating just like a shooting a trad bow would be but if you uh, put some time into it and develop those skills it can be real effective too oh yeah i, I think a lot of that you know also depends on where you hunt i mean i don't see a point of hunting on the ground if you're on a hardwood ridge you know with trees everywhere but a lot of times them bucks hang out in places where there ain't no trees and hunting off the ground's your only option so it's either sit on the sidelines or get out there and give it your best shot yeah exactly exactly well let's talk about the other uh topic that was tucked in there and that's you hunting i, I believe you hunt some private land but you hunt a lot of public land too so how'd you end up as a, a public land hunter in a state with very little public land because from what I've heard, Texas is like 99% private or something, right? Oh, yeah. It's, but, the, I mean, I don't discriminate. I, don't, I get in where I fit in it. You know what I mean? I don't, I don't care. I, if I find a big buck on private, I'm not too good to go after him if they'll give me permission. But public was more out of necessity than anything. I mean, every year that goes by, it's harder to get permission to hunt somewhere. And... Being where I hunt, it's mainly all 40-acre and under private spots. If you like to hunt, you better have some options. So I, I just kept expanding, and everybody told me I could do it. But it wasn't easy. I mean, I ain't going to lie. Hunting some public deer is a little different than hunting some private ones in a lot of, a lot of conditions. Private deer, you know uh, a doe sees you up in the tree, she'll stand there and look at you, stomp her foot, head bob. On public, a lot of times, them suckers look like they were fired out of a cannon. <laughs> what the heck did that thing say? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Something is bad over here somewhere. But, I mean, you adapt like anything else. I mean, it takes time. But on the flip side, there's also some public that's better than private. If you got some barriers you can get away from or just some odd situations. But, yeah, it's hunting. 
Well, talk to me a little bit about, uh, I said you're not too good to hunt in private land, and I don't think, uh, I, I'm not, I know I'm certainly not, I've hunted my share, fair share of private land also. One of the things that I'm particularly not very good, I just don't think people like me for whatever reason, is getting permission <laughs> on uh, public or private land. So you got any tips or anything? You're, you're a smooth talker and a funny guy from what I've seen on the beast, so you might be a guy to get some uh, tips to get on private land. Anything that's worked for you? Well, I, I think a big reason I have easy success at it is because I've lived here my whole life. I mean, I believe people are more comfortable giving permission when they already know you. But also, in rural Texas, most people gun hunted. And when I went after them with, look, I only use a bow. I'm well aware of your lifestyle. They weren't as worried about me as they were the other guy who pulled up. Especially with the trad bow, they probably think you're just out oh, there, uh, out there. Trad uh, bow's <laughs> for you. <laughs> yeah. What, what can this guy do? <laughs> yeah. Might as well show up with a slingshot, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It does. I mean, it sounds silly and we laugh about it, but it's true. They see you out there with an old recurve. They're like, look at this idiot. <laughs> <laughs> Come on in. The water's fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, let's uh, let's shift gears here a little bit. You killed a pretty nice buck a few weeks ago, and from what I gathered from your your story, it sounds like you're traveling a bit more from your local area there to hunt, and you've sounds like you've got some additional confidence from doing that. So, first, why did you start traveling outside your your home area, your core area? Oh, I never traveled my whole life. To be honest with you, I, I was always I, I loved the run. I'm not going to lie. I am a rut junk. About middle of October, my neck starts swelling, and I start getting excited. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but it takes me time. I mean, I hunt in a very low deer number area. That's another reason why it's easier for me to get permission. Most people don't want to come out here and, I mean, sit day after day and not see anything. But I've seen all the other folks. I mean, going on these grand adventures and killing deer, and I guess I was in my head and competitive nature was, I wonder if I can do that. So last year, I just strike out. <laughs> I mean, I go five hours across the state, and honestly, deep down in my heart, I was like, ooh, I bet I ain't going to see squat on this trip. But uh, I had a shot at a really nice buck, and I, I whiffed. But it, in my head, I was like, holy smokes, I can do this. So I didn't kill anything, but I left there believing I could do it. And I was excited to try again. This season came up, and I was like, let's do it again. I wanted to do it early season. I'm saving my area for the rut. But things came together for me, and it finally worked out for me. So I don't want to know, don't uh, give any specifics about the area that would identify it, but how did you end up in the area that you traveled to? What what drew you to that area specifically? Well, like I said, around here is very low deer numbers. So I researched an area that had a lot of deer numbers. I figured that would at least increase my odds of seeing something. <laughs> and it did. And everything was different in that part of the state versus here. I mean, on the beast, you hear guys talk about all this sign and rubs and turds and tracks. Well, around here, with the low deer numbers, you don't have all that stuff. I'd say the regular 
family group main trail looks more like the Buck Faint Trail off to the side in other parts of the country. But when I got over there, I mean, it was it was the real deal. You could see the trails, the tracks, the turds, where they're feeding, where they're bedding. And I really enjoyed it. So what, if anything, did you learn hunting that higher deer density area or even a new part of the state? Did that help you or do you think it's going to help you with hunting your home area at all? Well, no, it's kind of a different animal than my home area just because I know this area so well. But over there, it was it was just different. I mean, and it gave some set of problems. You get into those high deer density areas, and dead gum, something is going to get downwind of you. And when you get something in range, there's going to be lots of eyeballs. Yeah, that's one of the things that I noticed. Um, I think of like two different states. Where I'm from in Michigan, and I always explain it, like this to people that aren't familiar with Michigan because Michigan gets a bad rap and I think for a number of reasons it's accurate but a lot of it's inaccurate too and one of the things that I explain Michigan to people is that Michigan is a great state for opportunity meaning if you want to shoot a deer or any buck and you're not picky about a trophy buck then it's a great place to do it because all parts of the state almost all parts of the state have pretty good deer numbers but that's one of the challenges that comes along in a state with bad age structure where there's maybe only one or two three-year-old deer on the the place that you're targeting is well, you might have to fight through five eight ten fifteen does two or three younger bucks and like you said all those deer can still smell and they can all still see yeah that that's a, that was a big difference from what i'm used to because usually if you see one deer it's a good day and if you get him in front of you that's all you got to deal with yeah, and that, that's what I would compare more like uh, southern Ohio, I've hunted in Kansas, North Dakota was like that. Like the deer numbers are way lower than Michigan. That presents its own challenge as far as the frequency of opportunity. That's definitely lower, but when you do get an opportunity, there's a lot less that can go wrong, I feel like. Yeah. Yeah. Also on traveling hunts, you know, I try to keep realistic goals. If I'm traveling to unknown places, four days i'm not holding out for a whopper i realize odds i, I don't think i'm gonna catch, catch some slammer with three days to play with those typical bucks i'd pass at home i'm gonna let one fly on a traveling mission yeah and i, I don't know the quality of texas too much but uh that buck that you shot this year looks pretty darn nice to me oh yeah that uh, <laughs> that one wasn't what i had in mind <laughs> was, was that a shooter um, in the home area also yeah, that was probably a shooter in the home area. Too. Yeah, well, that's got to make you feel good. But he was with a bachelor group of 12, and I told myself, I mean, the wind's kind of sketchy, the direction they're coming from. I'm like, first one through, I'm going to let it fly. And that buck was actually the last one when, they, when I initially saw him step out of the thicket. He was at the back. But when they hit this stretch of live oaks, he took the lead, and he came in front of me, and I let him have it. Well, that worked out well. Was that the biggest one in the group? Yeah, he was, he was the biggest one in the group. Heck yeah, that's <laughs> awesome. Love it when a plan comes together, right? <laughs> the whitetail got gave me a tip of the cap. That, <laughs> it, it don't always go that way. <laughs> I think anybody that's bow hunted any amount of time knows that uh, the plans usually fail more than they work, that's for sure. I'm going to take one more break to mention huntingbeastgear.com. 
Co-founded by the big buck serial killer himself, Dan Infault, Hunting Beast Gear features state-of-the-art manufacturing techniques, the highest quality materials, and innovative designs that have been engineered, field-tested, and refined to perfection by a group of the best mobile hunters on the planet. www.huntingbeastgear.com delivers cutting-edge products including beast gear climbing sticks with weight reduction holes designed to deliver incredible durability in a lightweight climbing stick. Beast Gear Climbing Sticks also feature non-staggered inline stacking and double steps, all in a 2.2-pound package, including the fastening strap. HuntingBeastGear.com has also released the game-changing Beast Gear Hang-On Tree Stand, designed to be the ultimate hang-on tree stand solution with four years of prototyping, testing, and refinement. The Beast Gear Stand features a 16-inch wide by 29-inch long platform and comes in at an incredible 6.8 pounds without compromising strength or durability. The Beast Gear Stand is finished with a durable anodized coating and features grade 8 hardware, high-quality Delrin washers, beast buttons, and adjustment knobs. For more details and a place in order today, head on over to www.huntingbeastgear.com. Now, back to the podcast. That, that particular morning, well, before that, we've had a, a heat wave for weeks, and it storms typical days were 85. I mean, the hottest point of the day would be low 90 and that particular morning a front pushed through and at daylight it was 57 degrees and i seen these does first right at daylight and they were feeling frisky i was like man it is gonna happen this morning about 10 minutes later i seen them bucks stepped out of the thicket and i was like whoo here we go <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> nothing like brain coming together <laughs> yeah exactly so now that you've uh, traveled within the state, you got any plans to travel out of state, or is that something you've ever been interested or might be interested in doing now? I have a bucket list goal of going to Iowa once. I mean, I want to save a month's vacation and booner or bust, <laughs> and I, I want a big one. But uh, right now, that's kind of out of my reach. <laughs> yeah. Well, if uh, you do plan on that, I actually. I'll be going here shortly. This is my first time ever having the tag. And oh, wait, Dan, thank you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's what I'm here for, just to hurt your feelings. <laughs> if uh, if you do plan on doing that, I don't know what your, uh, like I said, what your time or your budget looks like, but I know it takes three, four, five points these days, so start saving now. Yeah, I guess the big thing with me that's different about Texas and the lots of states is if I travel within my own state, I can kill three bucks a year. I mean, it's, <laughs> anything more than that's just greedy. <laughs> sure. So how does that work? Is there different regions or you get three tags as a resident? It's by county. Like, uh, if every county has a different harvest quota. Like, I live in a one-buck county here, but I could travel to another county and kill another buck, and then another county and kill another buck. Okay. Yeah, it's interesting to learn all these states got different regs and different season dates and quotas and how they manage their tags. So it's always interesting to learn about that. Some counties with higher deer populations, you can kill three bucks and three does in that one county. But uh, uh, most of the closer ones to me are in the lower deer number areas are all one buck counties. Okay. But that one I left, just left, you could put a herd on them there if you wanted to. Right. Lots of deer sounds like. So we talked a little bit about it. You you picked an area with higher deer numbers, but once you got to that area, what do you think contributed to your success on that hunt? Was it 
you know, e-scouting? Was the boots on the ground? How'd you end up in the area you ended up in and that, you know, once you got to that general area, how'd you narrow it down? Well, I basically, that trip was what I call dummy hunting. I mean, I, I scouted the first day I got there. And I got myself in a decent spot, but I, I mean, you're watching deer and you realize, man, a hundred yards over here is even better than where I'm sitting. So then I move over there. And then the next day you realize, hey, well, 75 yards farther is even better than right here. And you just, I just kept moving around, and then I eventually hit that sweet spot. Yeah, and what, uh, what do you think contributed in that area? Was it, was it like the bedding area, water, bunch of diverse terrain? What, what do you think that, you know, breaking it down after the fact, what did that area have that made it better than those first two spots you were in? Well, the kill was actually caused from live oaks. I, I saw the deer feeding on the strip of live oaks the evening before, but also a lot of other ones. They got a big rain up there maybe four days before I got there. It'd been dry since summer, and those new green grass shoots were coming out. So you were also getting a bunch of deer peppering that new growth poking through the surface, and that's what kind of threw me off. But when I saw them start hitting them oaks, I just moved over there, and that next morning it happened. Yeah, and I obviously – with you being a long time beast member, you recognize the importance of being mobile and, and getting in a spot and more and more, um, the more that I hunt and the more, especially that I hunt in newer areas, I think that in season scouting slash being adaptable, that's how you, you get it done in a new area is like, just keep moving, Oh yeah, keep moving to, like you said, you see something good. Well, then you see something better. So move right in there. Don't, don't waste any time. Oh yeah. Uh, the only thing with it, with that method is you got to get in the game early. I mean, it, you can't do that if you get set up in a bad spot and don't have nothing to witness, you know, going on over here, you got to get yourself close. But once you're close, you can just keep tweaking until you hit that sweet spot. Yeah. And that's a good segue into something else I want to discuss with you because I haven't had any Southern hunters on yet. And I've read enough from Southern hunters to say, well, the, you know, the beast tactics apply to, varying degrees not always in the south like they do in the midwest so what's your experience been like with that what have you learned from the hunting beast that's been applicable and what have you learned that maybe is not so applicable in in texas well texas being so big like i was saying my home court versus where i just got back from is like two completely different states both the the cover the terrain and as well as the deer numbers on, on my home court with the low deer numbers they're a lot more nomadic. You know, they they don't have that one particular primary bedding spot. We're just all early season. They're right there, and it just doesn't work that way. There's more food than deer is what I guess I'm saying. Sure. And being a gun state, not a lot of people put pressure on them early season. So they're, you can't confine them to, you know, the overlooked spot. Yet. Now, once the guns start going off, that's when you can find those overlooked but right out the gate it's tough around here is tough or at least it is on me early season i can get on them in the summer but <clears throat> we have a it's a big dove hunting area all right parts and those deer that feed in those fields all summer once them 12 gauges start blasting you know they they move and then the acorns start dropping and there's just a lot going on to really narrow one down 
other places I've hunted, it's the same tactics, but I believe there's it's more of a bedding thicket than an actual bed. I mean, they move around in there a lot. It's not a worn to the dirt, you know, rubs right in the bed type scenario. It, that wind's constantly shifting, and they're just, they have a thicket or two that they like, but it's not just laying in one spot the whole time. Yeah, and something I've noticed uh, early season or in areas that to the south more that get more heat, not Texas. Like I said, I've never hunted or, or even been in Texas, but it seems like uh, I've noticed it with mule deer too. Shade is a big deal, so I wonder if they're moving around in those thickets to stay in the shade during the heat of the day. Yeah, maybe, especially early season. It gets hot here a lot. I hunt in a lake town. I mean, the whole county, there's a couple lakes. But you get that breeze coming off the water, you know, if the wind's right, keeps the bugs off of them and everything else. If they got an escape route, when it's hot, they, they like it right there by the water. You got to take advantage of what whatever the train gives you, I think. And that's, again, that's going back to beast tactics is being adaptable and, and using what you got to work with. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's let's talk about trail cameras for a minute. You mentioned trail cameras earlier and having pictures of that big old eight point uh, mostly at night how are you deploying your trail cameras what are you looking for on those are you doing like uh in-season intel are you what i call prospecting where you put them out for the whole year looking for next year how are you using your cameras personally well first off when i travel i don't use them at all i mean i'm there for three or four days i don't i don't have time to jack with i mean you don't gain a lot of intel and one or two days but around home in the summer i put them on salt you know starting end of july whenever the antlers are getting good and that's mainly mainly for uh seeing what's on the menu more than anything i mean by the time hunting season starts those bucks are long gone but i still like looking at pictures of big ones and knowing what's around out there that, that's also the easiest time for me to find them and then from there, I put them in cruising areas or stuff like that around middle of October, and I'll leave them for about two weeks. And then I'll pull those, and I just want to see what bucks are coming through. I'm trying to find an area with a good number of deer that I would shoot. I'm not very good at math, but I like my odds of five better than I do one. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Hard <laughs> to argue with that we talked about the rut too earlier and you said you'd like the rut and my experience again hunting a few different states now and some of those states with much lower deer density it's obviously much easier in a low density area during the rut and i think it's i think it's better the rut's better because once those deer do breed uh, a doe then they get they generally they got to travel quite a bit to find the next one so they're a lot more visible it seems like yeah what kind of setups in Texas in your in your low deer density area, low deer density area, your home court? What are you looking for? Are you hunting thickets, uh, pinches, all that stuff? What what gets it going in Texas for you? Being that my range is kind of limited with the recurve, I, you know, I I don't want to watch one from seventy five yards away run out of my life. If he comes through, I want him to be in front of me. So I'm hunting some type of restriction to get him in my wheelhouse. But uh, I typically hunt a year behind my camera. After I've pulled them middle October cameras, when I'm typically catching those bucks setting up their cruising routes at night, 
then I stick them in, in tight restrictions on places I don't intend to hunt this year. And I'm looking for a small window of time that puts numerous good bucks in front of me. And then the following year, I'll hunt that window, that stand. You know, I'll give it three or four days to do its thing. And then if that don't pan out, I'm going to the next three or four windows, three or four day window that I found. And I just keep bouncing doing that. And then, I mean, that sounds all great and easy, but some years, you know, I never find the window. Or I don't know where these bucks went. But a best case scenario, that's what I did. So let's talk about sitting the same stand. And I know uh, I get varying opinions from people, especially beast members. But during the rut, I'm much more willing to sit a stand two, three days in a row, especially in a low deer density area. So when you say this window that let's say you got property A and you ran a camera there last year, and I'm just throwing out arbitrary dates here, but November 1st to November 5th, you had four or five shooters go through in that five-day window. Are you sitting one stand in that where your camera was that whole time? I mean, I'm sitting that same spot based on the wind. You know, I might have to move the stand directly across to the other side or vice versa, sometimes within the same day if it switches on me. But I'm hunting that spot for, yes, that window. Yeah, and I think that's that's one of my big takeaways personally from being on the hunting beast. And I mean, it, it after you realize it, and it's probably intuitive to a lot of people now, but again, going back to there wasn't all this information when we were starting out in pre-hunting beasts, I didn't realize how important it was to hunt certain areas at certain times. Like that spot is probably at its best only for a small window every season. And, and that's the time to hunt it, not all the other days. Yeah, and it's crazy how you'll get a picture of a buck like on November 5th. In the following year, you won't get one picture of him the whole year. And November 5th, here he comes again. You're like, gee, what is going on over here? Yeah, animals are incredible, man. I was just recently, I was talking to my girlfriend. I read an article on Google or whatever, random news feed. And there's an area in, in northwest Michigan called Traverse City, and it's like a kind of a ritzy resort getaway area wine country and i guess they had this problem bear and it was tearing up everybody's trash so they relocated at 125 miles to a east part of the state like remote big timber forest you know big woods type area and a month later that bear was back in traverse city so it's like man animals their uh their sense of timing and the direction it's uncanny it's crazy i mean what i do the important thing is not tipping your hand before it's right. I mean, if you go in there, open the day, and beat that sucker to death, it's not going to work for you come the rut. I mean, you got to know when to stay out and when to hit it. Yeah, and I think, you, you, I'm sure you'll agree with me, that comes with age and wisdom, right? It's like, man. Oh, yeah, it comes with screwing the pooch. <laughs> yeah, when you're younger, it's like, oh, that's the good spot. And you, you don't, I mean, even if you realize November 1st or the 5th is a good spot, you think, oh, just maybe. If I'm there, just maybe October 1st, that'll be the good spot. I remember when I first started, you know, I might have killed a buck my first one, like December 5th. Open day, Jack, I was in that tree. That's <laughs> yeah. the honey hole. <laughs> That's my spot now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and it, it takes some screwing up, and it, and it takes a system, you know, what works for the individual. You know, a, a guy with no patience, well, he can't do what I do, just sit there for three or four days. And people who 
who like to do spot and stalk or still hunt, well, I sound like a herd of elephants. No matter how hard I tried, I would never be good doing that. Yeah, it takes a different skill set. Well, hey, that's, I mean, that's part of developing your own style too, right? Re- recognizing what your strengths are and what your weaknesses are and playing to those. Oh, yeah, I'm a sitter by nature. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk about two or three of your, your biggest takeaways. So you've been deer hunting uh, on and off since you're nine, been hunting with the trad equipment. How long with the trad bow now? I don't. I guess we didn't point that out. I know you said you've been doing it for a while, but how, when did you pick the bow, the trad bow up? I want to say this is probably my 11th year, maybe 12. But I, one season, right out the gate, I went to shoot a doe and broke my bottom limb, and I finished the year with compound. But that was the last time I shot a compound. <laughs> that was that year. I've strictly hunted with it for 10 years i'd say okay so let's let's cover the whole gamut gun compound stick bow now if you're going to give advice and and to deer hunting in general and also maybe specific to texas what kind of advice would you give me if i was starting out Ooh, embrace the suck <laughs> <laughs> i mean in all honesty set your own expectations don't let others dictate what's fun for you, what you should shoot. Don't let other people tell you you can't do something. Get out there, get your own answers, and have fun. That's, that's basically all there is. I mean, everything else doesn't matter. you got to figure out what matters and what doesn't matter and get it done. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, especially with the uh, expectation setting. You know, hunt, hunt for yourself. And also find out what works for yourself. And, you know, I talk about it all the time. There's no replacement for experience. I mean, the beast certainly helps you shortcut a lot of, like, big major errors. But you still got to get out there and pay your dues and learn and make your own mistakes and and all that. I hear it. It took me two years to realize the deer even had a nose. (laughs) I mean, I I didn't pay attention to the wind. What are these suckers blowing at them? (laughs) Right, right. Oh man, it's funny, isn't it? I mean, I know for myself too. I, I talked about this on the podcast I did with Adam Miller from the Bow Hunters Chronicles podcast. Like, I was the world's worst deer hunter for a while, and I don't know. I probably could have gave you a pretty good run. Yeah, that, that's all part of it, though, right? It's like you learn, and that's the big thing for me, right? You learn something each of those years, and and you you quit making those big mistakes, and hopefully over time you make less and less. Oh, yeah. I mean, even with the information out there now, I mean, you can't fly a plane just from reading the manual. It sounds easy, and then you get out there, and you're like, ooh, this ain't what I had in mind. You're going to have to screw up regardless what information you get. I mean, it's just not simple as reading this checklist, and I'm going to go out here, pay attention to the wind, hunt this bedding area, and I'm going to get him, Jack. Right. Well, heck, even if you could remember everything, actually applying it when you get out there, like one, it's hard to remember, uh, the 500, 600 things you got to do right on a hunt and then to, <laughs> to apply them all with just from memory, that'd be pretty tough. Oh yeah. And then keep it together when it gets in front of you. Yeah. That's the real problem when you're starting out. <laughs> at least, at least it is for a lot of guys. Oh, it gets me once in a while still. Sure. Sure. I think, yeah, if people are being honest, like if you didn't get excited, why would you do it? Right. Yeah, I mean, that, that one I just killed last week, that sucker was seven yards, 
and I was maybe eight foot up in the cedar tree. And I mean, it, <laughs> you saw the breath coming out of his nostrils. I mean, it was close enough to get some blood splatter on your boots. It, it was close in person. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, those are the most fun too, for sure. It's fun when they work out. When they don't, it ain't so fun, Jerry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah well, what happened? He was only seven <laughs> yards away. Yeah, how am I going to explain this one? <laughs> well, now that you got one down and you explained to me a little bit about how the uh, quota works in Texas, so you can still get one in your home area, right? What's the plans for the rest of the season? Oh, yeah, I can get one in my home area, and then I can travel and get another one. I'm, uh, I'm actually leaving next week to a different part of the state. Try again. Nice. So what about, I know uh, Alabama's got a real funky rut. Is the rut in Texas later or in your area? Is it similar to the Midwest, like, you know, first couple of weeks in November? Texas, the state's so big in, in size. I mean, different parts of the state have completely different ruts. Some of them start, you know, the first week of October. And then others, like South Texas, I think is towards the middle of December or something like that. Mine, I'd say mine's about a, a week behind the Midwest. Okay. But it, it doesn't have that, we don't have that intensity like the Midwest does. I've never hunted it, but just off what I've seen and read, it sounds a lot more ferocious than that part of the country. It's kind of a trickle effect here. And I read something about that. Uh, I can't remember. I couldn't quote you the article, but it was like from a deer biologist or something. I'm, I'm kind of a nerd. So I like reading that stuff. And it's something to do with the, the severity of the winter and the cold that the, the breeding window is a lot smaller in the North for fawn survival. Yeah. Yeah. Here it, it, it's, man, I'm still seeing fawns just now drop. No, it's fun. Oh, really? I, I think, yeah, there's some breeding going on from the time they come out of velvet to the time they drop their horn, but there is a, a window where the bulk of them do get bred. And you'd say that's what, third, fourth week in November, similar, like I said, a little bit behind the Midwest? I'd say prime breeding is probably around the 20th of November, if I had to just guess. Okay. But around, I always get a picture of a dandy on Halloween every year. I mean, it ain't predictable. It's different bucks with different cameras. But I'll get one every Halloween in daylight. Yeah. But I typically, I don't start getting serious until about the 5th. And then uh, I'm hoping there's some cool weather with that. Yeah, that sounds pretty similar. And, and it's weird. I, I guess I didn't understand or I didn't expect it. So coming out west, Michigan, the peak breeding date, you know, and you, you put the rut on one. I always say seven days before this date, seven days after, but it seems like peak breeding is around the 9th or the 10th, maybe the 11th. So you got from November 2nd to, you know, the 15th, 18th, that's probably the main window. And out West, it definitely seems like it's five to 10 days later, South Dakota. It was later. The whitetail rut in Montana is a little later. Um, so it's probably actually similar to your area where I'd say it's more like the 15th to the 20th is the peak out here. It's, it's been my experience. Yeah, I like, if you can get a cold front right before that bomb goes off, whew, it's going to be dynamite. But when it's hot, which it typically is around here, it, most of the breeding happens at night. It, these things aren't running around all foaming at the mouth. But right when that air starts to smell sweet, if you get a little cold front, that 
there's going to be some good stuff moving. Yeah, I wonder. So just to draw an analogy, we had a really warm September this year, and I think an overwhelming majority of the elk was going on at night because I was in areas that I knew there were elk, and you might hear a bugle or two in the morning, and you might hear one right before dark. But, man, there was nights where all night long all I heard was bugles. It's a little frustrating. I imagine that's probably like Texas when it's warm out. You know, there's not much you can do. It's still going on. You just can't see it. Yeah, it. Uh, I mean, I'm still out there. Don't get me wrong. I don't wait around for the stars to align. But when it does, uh, you know, I'm calling in to work. <laughs> I, I'm going to be out there. Yeah, yeah. I'm thinking about calling in tomorrow. It's supposed to be like forty something here, and our, our elk archery season ends this weekend. So Sunday's my last day, and uh, not that you know the best part of the rut's certainly over. That ends probably the you know first couple of days of October. The rut's pretty much over for elk but i'm stubborn like you said i want to get out there and get one more chance even if i don't get one more chance i gotta be honest with you though and both hunting and fishing i've always had miserable days when i call into work i don't know what it is (laughs) don't tell me that clay (laughs) i'm just saying don't say it okay well i hope i get a big one and i can send it to you and i'll tell you to call and see it can work (laughs) and you send me a pic i'm telling yeah yeah Well, hey, Clay, we're, we're coming up on an hour here, and I try not to keep people more than an hour, but I want to turn it over to you. And uh, we talked about a lot of topics today. Anything else that you'd like to add? Or I've been targeting this podcast kind of across the spectrum. You know, a lot of newer hunters, I think, listen. There's also guys that got more experience and listen that listen as well. Anything that you think you'd like to add from your experience as a hunter that we didn't go over today? Well, I don't think a lot of people know how to give something their best shot. I mean, if you give something your absolute best and fail, there's no hard feeling. But I know I haven't always done that, and that's when you have regret sink in. I wonder how things would have happened if I would have tried a little hard. You know, stuff like that. When you go out there and lay it all on the line, you can't lose. You either have the satisfaction of knowing you did everything you can or you're going to get the suck. And as years roll by, you're going to be all right. No, that's a great point. And uh, I wonder, has your mindset on that changed as you got older? Because, man, I know me personally, and maybe it's just my nature, but I wasted a lot of good time when I was younger. And I feel like the older I get, the more that I'm really trying to do exactly what you said. And, like, give it your best shot. You're there, especially traveling, right? If, like, you're traveling to different areas or I'm tra- traveling out of state it's like you're there what are you there for are you there to just waste your time or are you there to get after it so more and more i'm trying to get after it what are you going to do (laughs) yeah exactly exactly no that's a great piece of advice and uh i think like i said maybe it's just me but for younger guys in general that maybe don't have all that drive yet they got some drive but not all that drive man the seasons go by so quick and before you know it you're getting to be an old man so oh yeah and you eventually get to a point where, I mean, knowledge-wise, you're better than you ever were, but now your body can't do what you used to. You can't pack in there five miles anymore, so you have to constantly keep adapting to what you can do. Yeah. I mean, there will come a time, I'm sure, where I can't climb a tree anymore, and I'm going to be forced to hunt from the ground. Yeah, that day's coming for everybody, whether we want to admit it or not. Yeah. 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 
So, well, hey, Clay, thanks for coming on today. Like I said, been a pleasure to talk to you. I wish you good luck this season, but you already had some. So I wish you even more good luck and hope to see you in the kill zone again here in the near future. Well, thank you. I'm looking forward to seeing if you get that bull tomorrow so I can tell you Paul. Yeah. <laughs> Rat me out. Come on. <laughs> I thought there was honor among hunters. we got to keep that stuff a secret. I'm jealous. I've always wanted a bull. I don't even care if I kill one or not. I just want one to scream in my ear to see what it feels like. Man, I don't know. I don't think I told this story on the podcast. I might have mentioned it on The Beast, but I'm getting on a bit of a tangent here, but this won't take too long. So my girlfriend hasn't, she goes hunting with me, but she hasn't been elk hunting with me too much at all, usually because it's backcountry or I'm camping or she's busier for whatever reason. But uh must have been October, the first weekend in October, she, she decided she was going to go with me. So we went out and smaller piece of property but we'd seen some elk there in the spring when we were out shed hunting and like i said the best part of the rut's over by the first part of october so i figured the pressure had died off even though i knew that spot had been pressured already because i had been in there once like kind of during prime time and seen a couple vehicles in there so we get we get out there and we heard one bull bugle way off with about an hour of daylight left. And when I say way off, when you can barely hear them, they're like three quarters of a mile, maybe a mile away. But elk covered ground quick, man, a lot quicker than a deer. So I was like, well, I looked at the topo and I said, oh, if they're coming our way, which they're probably not, they're going to end up roughly over here. So we snuck over there over the course of like the next 30 minutes. And I was like, we're just going to stand here for 10, 15 minutes, see if we hear anything. If we don't, I'll go ahead and cow call and then we'll wait five, 10 minutes. And then if we don't hear anything, I'll bugle. So we get over there. Don't hear anything. I cow call twice. Nothing bugles back. You know, woods is dead. Haven't seen any fresh elk sign, nothing. And then I rip a bugle maybe two minutes after I cow called. And I'm not kidding you, Clay. Sounds like there's an elk in a phone booth with us. This big bull bugles back. And he's like, I, you know, I couldn't see him when he bugled, but he had to be 80, 90 yards. And then I look up, I look up where he bugled from because there was no mistake in the direction it came from. And this giant freaking bull is running right at us. And, and I'm not embarrassed to admit it. Basically we got caught with our pants down. Like I didn't yeah. expect there to be one. I didn't have an arrow knocked. You know, we were next to a tree. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We weren't, we weren't prepared. So long story short, he ended up seeing us at like 60 yards and busted out of there. But man like you said you wanted to see one that's the encounter you dream of and yeah it is. talking about screwing the pooch I, I definitely messed that encounter up what are you gonna do though uh, i did the same thing before i killed this buck i think it was the morning or two before you know i i, I prefer taking a shot standing versus sitting i mean my my bow is pretty long sometimes it's, if it's a harder hard left or hard right shot my limbs can get in the way of the cable so <laughs> i stand for probably the first 45 minutes of daylight and i haven't seen jack squat my legs are starting to hurt so i put my bow on a hanger and sit down and no longer did i sit down this sucker pops up i mean 10 yards in front of me and the first thing i seen was eyeballs i'm like crap my bow right. <laughs> and he just <laughs> on by. I'm like you gotta be killing me. <laughs> Yeah, man, that's how it goes sometimes. It seems like when you're when you're not expecting it, that's when it happens. Hard to stay vigilant the whole hunt, too. Yeah. I don't know how many times in my life I, I've hung my bow up to pee, and as soon as I get done, here it comes. I'm like, geez. <laughs> I've been sitting here for two days and nothing. As soon as I pull my zipper down, you want to come out. 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah, they know. They know. Yeah. All right. Well, hey, Clay, I'll cut you loose. It's uh, I think it's dinner time over here anyways. So, like I said, we'll be following along. And anybody that uh, that isn't familiar with you, you're – you're on the beast all the time, a regular contributing member. And do you, do you do any social media? Do you got a Facebook or Instagram or YouTube? Are you doing any of that stuff? No, I, I leave that up to the professional. All right. Well, yeah, that's uh that was, that was me until a year ago. And I wouldn't say I'm professional, but yeah, kind of, kind of comes with the territory if you're going to do a podcast. Yeah, I hear you. So, all right, man. Well, Hey, again, thanks for coming on. Thanks for taking the time to talk to me today and we'll catch you later. All righty. Thank you.